Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening and you know anything about cloth nappies, give me a shout. Hi guys. Hi there. Happy New Year. Very, very happy New Year. And welcome to the latest episode of Slaughter, the true crime podcast. <laughs> I still don't know what it's called. <laughs> so I'm going to start today and I am doing the, it's like uh, Arthur Blatch. Let's go with that. The man at Witham, Witham Station, it's been called as well. I, I used the book Essex Murders by Linda Stratton for most of this. I like the name Blatch. I, yeah, it's a nice name. It's good to. Blatch. So this story takes place in Colchester in 1893 an oldie and um a guy called alfred welch was a tailor in a shop in colchester Ooh, that's almost a, that's nice welch and mm, black this names, one is going to be a nightmare to listen to so he was born in hertfordshire but he married to and moved to london and then to colchester and they had six children as people did and alfred was quite known in the community so he was well regarded well thought of um he was a freemason which I think we've talked about before, haven't we? Is that um, yeah, like a town leader sort of? Your little society of brethren. Yeah. So you people with a trade. my back, I'll yeah. scratch yours. And he was also part of the cyclist club, which I'm sort of a little bit surprised existed in 1893. Do you think they were all on penny farthings? I don't know. Is that, I feel like that's older. I suppose it's nearly 1900s. Yeah. Ooh. They must be like, but to be in a cycling club then you'd be like a super cool kid yeah i think he was he was big news he was also part of the swedenborgian religion uh, which i hadn't heard of so i googled and that was created due to the writings of a man called emmanuel swedenborg who was alive in the 1600s and he wrote that he had received a new revelation from christ um, and he'd had all these um hallucinations and I think delusions, but you know, um, that uh, over 15 years 
And so a new church was created that worshipped Jesus instead of God. Oh. Yeah. But he didn't set up the church. People just, after he died, they just sort of jumped on the bandwagon. So it's kind of a bit more liberal. I think one of the beliefs was that anyone who follows their religion well will be accepted into heaven. But it was found- regardless of it, like even if you unconsciously follow it, do you mean like if you're just a good person? I think it's more like if you're a Muslim and you do that well, even though Jesus is like the main one, you'll you still, still get in. You're allowed. You yeah, got, I like that. Yeah, ticket. But it it began in 1787, so quite a long time after Swedenborg died, and it was established in England uh, because he spent quite a lot of time here. Um, yeah. People I mean, like realistically, it. if God was all loving, then he would just love nice people because they're nice. Like, take your ego out of it and don't be yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I, yeah I, don't, I don't get on board with all the stuff that's like, yeah, if you don't praise me every day, I'm yeah, going like, to strike why, you down. Like, oh, I'm, I know everything. I'm really merciful, but I'm also quite petty. <laughs> yeah. So at 9.40pm uh, on the 8th of December in 1893... A PC George Alexander was walking his beat and saw smoke coming from the roof of Alfred's house. So he saw that the top floor was on fire and he called the fire brigade. So they broke down the door and um, another great name, a man called Henry Rice. He was a volunteer firefighter. He found it really hard to see. It mentioned in the book, so we lit a gaslight. Not, oh my god not the best idea <laughs> nothing bad happened it was, i don't know how they know that and then he spilled his vodka on the fire like, <laughs> threw water on the chip on fire so he found that there was a heap of material on fire so he thought this looks deliberate so the the local firefighters i think there were more sort of volunteer firefighters at that point they used water jets to put out the flames and it took several hours and one of the volunteer firefighters was a man called henry sizzy and he worked for alfred so he knew this is alfred's house um Um, well it wasn't his house actually sorry it was the shop that he owned but he he obviously worked there so he knew the building really well and he helped to work out where alfred was likely to be because obviously they wanted to tell him that the shop was on fire Um, but no one could find him to tell him about the fires. They looked at his house, they looked at his offices and no sign of Alfred. So then they began to become a little bit concerned that he might be in the building. I mean, it's 9.40 at night, he shouldn't be, but it is a possibility. So by 1am, it was eventually safe enough to search the building and it was badly damaged by the fire and water. Uh, And on the first floor, by the staircase, they found Alfred Welch's charred remains oh i know wait so the fire was upstairs so it must have been a level higher than the fire they were fighting yeah so otherwise they'd all just stepped over him like (laughs) yeah ignore this bag of bones we've got to get to the fire (laughs) well they specifically thank you for pointing out that discrepancy so the body hadn't been there before when henry rice had emptied um so Ooh, I think it had they, been moved. Well, they believed that it had fallen from a collapsed area upstairs because obviously the building, the roof was falling in. So they thought he'd been on the top floor, but the his body had fallen down uh, yeah. to sort of like the first floor. Or an owl flew in, <laughs> picked him up and dropped him at the bottom of the stairs. So if you subscribe to the owl, th- owl theory, <laughs> maybe it's just owls responsible for all these murders all this time. 
Um, so Henry Sizzy became hysterical when his boss's remains were found. And he reportedly shouted, if there's one, then there are two. But he later... That's a weird thing <laughs> yeah. to say. Later he denied that and said, I, I never said that. But that, that is kind of an odd thing to be shouting. He also ran forward and grabbed the head of Alfred's corpse and his thumb went through the skull and it sort of crumbled a little bit. Which again, like people were like, that's a weird thing to do as a grieving man. Bloody men always getting hysterical about things. <laughs> True. Calm the fuck down. So then he began saying it was Brennan a... put his thumb through the skull. Yeah. I think like he grabbed the head and like... It oh, just, just didn't realise how fragile it would no. be. Look at me, Alfred. Something like that. Um, so he started r- ranting and raving and saying it was Blatt uh, who had murdered him. So they called a doctor. I'm not really sure why. Is he dead? <laughs> so Jonathan Becker came. I'm not, I don't know what that comment... Yes, he's definitely dead. Well, thank you very much. Um, so he confirmed that Alfred was indeed deceased. He earned his money that day. <laughs> and uh, he was. Uh, the body was carried to Alfred's offices. And there were a few items with it that sort of confirmed it was Alfred. So there were his keys. Um, There was a double truss, which I'm not sure if you've heard of. It's like a special pair of pants. Oh. Was it because when they had the little little flap over there? Is it trousers or actual pants? No, it's like little pants. I think it's for if you've had a hernia and it sort of holds your stomach in. Oh. But I just thought it might be double thick so you can't see the outline of your dick. Well, I was more like, what are these flame-proof pants that he's wearing? <laughs> Everything else is charred. The skull is falling apart, but his pants have remained intact. Perfectly. There was also a rope that had been round around the neck of the body. Oh. So they sort of believed at this point, well, that he'd killed himself and then maybe started the fire. The shop was locked up, but people... So, like, obviously... They didn't have time to investigate at that point. They just locked it shut. But the next day, people were making trips. And that weekend, making special outings to go see the burnt shop. Because I guess the olden days were kind of boring. Yeah, not much to do. (laughs) So uh, there were a lot of people flocking around. They didn't get in. They didn't just sort of destroy the crime scene. But yeah, people, people thought it was like a sight to behold. So an inquest was held. And they had... Like a jury for this, I guess, to decide what to do. Um, so the jury and the coroner had been friends with Alfred because they were all sort of local people. So they were like members of the jury that had worked for him or were also mm-hmm. in this, um, what is it, the Freemasons, are they called? Yes. I always think Stonemasons, but definitely <laughs> the Simpsons, isn't it? Yeah. So it was kind of an upsetting time because there were a lot of people there that really liked Alfred. Um, his skull had become like a blackened ball. And only a few bones showed that this was once a human. So it had been really destroyed by the fire. Now, they questioned a few witnesses. One of them was Henry Sizzy, who, remember, was the employee who'd run and gone, oh, my goodness, and grabbed the skull. Yeah. There must be two. (laughs) So he was asked about the likelihood of this being a suicide. And he said that he didn't think Alfred would ever do that and that he just he just thought that was out of the question. He also revealed that Alfred had told him that day that he'd run into someone called George, whose real name was Arthur Blatch, who had been a previous employee at the company. Um, but this Blatch had... I don't know if he'd been fired or he'd just left, but basically he'd taken loads of time off and I think he'd sort of disappeared. So Alfred said that 
uh, so he'd come in and said, oh, I saw that George, um, as he called him, um, and he wants to speak to me urgently. Um, but he'd he'd said, okay, come to the shop. But because Henry was there as well, Blatch didn't want to go and have this conversation in front of like someone else. Right. So he said, no, 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 no. I want to talk just to you. I want to talk privately. So Alfred had said to him, right, come after hours, come at 8 p.m. Remember, this fire was quite big at 9.40. So Henry said... He was surprised that Blatch hadn't wanted to come to the shop when he was there because he said they'd always got on fine. That Maybe that's any. why he was saying if there's one, there must be two. Maybe he expected to see Arthur Blatch's body Maybe. in the building too because he thought, oh, he was visiting him then. Yeah, potentially. But he said that he believed that the conversation that they'd had was probably Blatch asking for money. The inquest agreed that the police should go to London and try to find Arthur Blatch. They thought, well, this is the obvious next step if someone's presenting this as a witness. So the only clue to where he could be was a postman who'd become friends with Blatch. And basically, okay. it's, it's really weird. Like, there's this little tale. I guess the postman knows where everyone lives. Well, apparently he'd found Blatch just, like, lying on the street, hungry. So he'd just taken him home with him and given him a bit of dinner. Aww. Yeah, it's quite cute. And then they'd become friends. Lovely. <laughs> yeah so please um i'll say then blatch had written to the postman i think i guess to thank him and or just because they were friends and so they had an address um a return address so they went to that address and it was a lodging house and they were informed that blatch had been living there but had moved on a month before so a medical examination of alfred's body was begun i mean what was left of it i guess there wasn't much yeah. but then within the hour that they'd started i mean it was these two little sort of i, I imagine bumbling local <laughs> doctors who just started doing i guess they didn't do many of these because people probably just died of natural causes a lot but within the hour uh, it'd be great in a drama this, it, it was summoned to stop by an expert and <laughs> say so, like the coroner ran in and said stop stop the examination because they thought there's the possibility of murder so then they got an expert called thomas bond James oh. So these guys were just like chopping it up into pieces so it could fit into a box, <laughs> being like, make it small, mash it up. <laughs> and the coroner had to stop them. I imagine by an hour in, they'd probably just finished their tea and biscuits, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so Thomas Bond travelled from London to Essex to conduct the post-mortem. And he'd actually been, um, he'd examined one of Jack the Ripper's victims. So he had a claim to frame that. Um, So due to the rope being wound several times around the neck, Thomas Bond concluded that this was not a suicide and it would have been murder because... Oh, you'd spin around? Yeah, I guess. How would you wind it? Like, if you were hanging yourself, it'd be a noose, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be... If you did wrap it around and then hung, you'd just go... Yeah, you'd <laughs> start spinning like a little top. I would just did a very lovely little uh, rendition of what that would have looked like. Um, and also, £100 was missing from the shop till. So that you've got motive there. So murder was very likely. There were two suspects. There was Henry Sissy. Yeah, because he mashed his skull up straight away. Yeah, and I there feel was like it was him. Arthur Blatch. So only Henry had reported at this point of seeing Blatch in the area that day. So if they're basing it on actual evidence, they could point Henry in the area, but Arthur Blatch was just a name that he'd come up with. But very quickly, two other of Alfred's employees came forward saying that they had also heard Alfred saying that he was going to meet with Blatch. And a bootmaker... <laughs> 
memory of the time, um, confirmed that he'd also seen Arthur Blatch hanging around about 7.50pm. Right. So in London, there was a bit of progress. They'd unearthed the name of an, a woman called, another good name, Elizabeth Rash. Um, not the most hygienic. Welch. Rash. And the whole gang. I mean, I could just be making all this shit up. Yeah. I, and I was like, yes, <laughs> that sounds reasonable. Dude, she'd been having enough. The next one's going to be called like Linda Squelch. And I was <laughs> like, yes, brilliant. <laughs> so she'd been having an affair with Arthur Blatch for about four years. Well, I think I think at first he'd sort of conned her into like he she thought he's a single bloke, but she'd worked out he is married. She she was kind of all right with it. So she'd actually moved in with him and they'd lived as if they were a married couple um, after he'd sort of left his wife. So police circulated a description of her. And this is the description. It's not the most flattering of poor Elizabeth Rush. Medium height, stout build, big nose, small scar on her hand. (laughs) Once you've got over the shock of the nose, please pay attention to the hand. (laughs) So Blatch's wife, so his actual wife she still lived in colchester and they also asked her she said she didn't know where he was but she was adamant he was innocent despite the fact he'd sort of jilted her and run off with this other woman so she believed he was in london looking for better work and he really did a number on her so he basically had written to her and said oh i'm still looking for work i haven't got any money to send you for child support for my four children because I'm not very well. Oh, that's three. And she was like, yes, yes, okay, understand. I'm not I'm not having an affair. And she said that she'd gone to one of the lodging houses where he'd been staying with Elizabeth. And they told her that they'd been booked separate rooms. So she very much believed oh. that he wasn't having an affair. This is just, just some woman that he knew. So she was like hook, line and sinker, sort of falling for all these this nonsense. So Blatch's movements on the night of the murder were traced to um, Witham Station, where he had appeared to be very anxious. So this was a couple of hours after the fire. People said that he'd been sort of hovering around the platform. He'd missed a train to London. He seemed really worried about that. Um, but he had pockets full of coins. So it's starting to look like we've got the right guy here. Mm. And then Blatch's uh, landlady was re-questioned, I think about six or seven times because they just didn't believe her. And she eventually admitted that the first time the police that could come up um, to look for Blatch, that she had, he'd been upstairs. Ah, So she'd been hiding him. He told her that some lie about that he'd tried to remortgage his friend's house and then everyone was trying to get him sectioned for being insane and that he had to go and hide um, and that if she told anyone where he was that he'd get carted off to an insane asylum. So she'd sort of gone for that. And this Blatch is quite a good story. I was going to say that worked quite well. I'm impressed. So Blatch's wife also admitted that she'd had him at her house a few days after the murder as well so he'd been in all these places that the police were looking he just was um, obviously a very convincing guy yeah probably really fit so police were contacted by a mr drawbridge (laughs) i promise this is real um he claimed that arthur blatch was now living under the name charles lillywhite in new zealand as a painter and decorator now this this was like time had passed the trail had gone cold this was like a year or so later um i say it was taking him months to sail there yeah so 
the town was still like the like stuff had been coming up every now and then like someone had said they'd seen him here someone had said they'd seen him there so people hadn't forgotten about the whole thing and obviously people hadn't forgotten about um alfred's murder because he was really well respected his family were there so people still really wanted this solved um in colchester and so when they heard about oh that you know they might have found him they might have caught him in australia or they might know where he is um, everyone got really excited again. So Charles Lillywhite was tracked down and they arrested him in New Zealand. But obviously, it's just this Mr. Drawbridge saying that it's him. So Mr. Drawbridge went along. He said, yep, that's him. I identified him as Arthur Blatch. But the expense of sending this guy back to the UK, the head constable was a little bit like, oh, I think we need to really have some more yeah. confirmation of some sorts. So he sent over two men from England, who should know Blatch from sight to go and identify Lily White as Blatch. Both agreed. Um, I would not agree. <laughs> Can you imagine being like, yeah, I'll just spend three months on a ship and three months on the other side back. of the world so I can have a look at this guy? No way. So both agreed um, and they met with Blatch. Well, they met with Lily White and they said, um, he seems different. <laughs> but I haven't seen him for a few years. He's got, he's a lot browner than he used to be. <laughs> but I think it's him. So they're like, I think there were two blokes and then um, a woman also who uh, used to know him, I think she was living out there for some reason as well. So she went to see him as well. So then they had the confirmation from all these witnesses. So they said, right, it's worth the while then. So they put Charles Lily White on a boat back to England. So the people of Colchester, really excited. They know when he's arriving. They're all gathering round. They're celebrating that justice would be done. He arrives and they're taken to the town hall and he's formally charged as Arthur Blatch. And everyone's there and it's really awkward because they're all like, that's definitely not him. (laughs) (laughs) Who the fuck is that? (laughs) He hasn't even got the same colour eyes. (laughs) They're just like, yeah, that's not him really uncomfortable and apparently one of the witnesses had said i I thought it was weird that his eyes had changed color oh my goodness oh jesus christ so it wasn't arthur blatch and isaac lillywhite so charles's brother came up he said yeah that's my brother that's charles lillywhite not arthur blatch and then there were like some more family members who came and they confirmed that actually this was charles lillywhite so lillywhite (laughs) has had this horrible ordeal um he's i think he's compensated um outside of court but they never found arthur blatch so mr draw <laughs> I, I bet mr blatch is mr drawbridge no. he's the one who's like oh yeah he's in new zealand bye <laughs> conspiracy theory i've seen him out there <laughs> promise because <laughs> he knew that would have been months and months of fannying around yeah all because of drawbridge yeah ridiculous so like a quite an insignificant murder but i love the little story afterwards of this guy just like and all the police are like i think they were really embarrassed at the end (laughs) okay so i'm say hello to a new era of mental health care cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100 online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm going to go even further back in time. There's We're further than 1893. There is. We're going to go to the Stuart period, the 1600s. Get ready. It was, well, I w- it's hard to speak in very true terms. If some sources are to believe it was a very pivotal, pivotal case in say- UK law, <laughs> but there are some even the original sources are disputed. Like one of the main mm. accounts that was written about it was written about 15 years after the event. So if we take that as gospel, then yeah, it was a great case. And if he made it all up, then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, because it's really hard, the further back you go, like I can't believe they had as much detail about Henry Rice putting like a gas burner on in like, how, who's recording that? Yeah. So the, I, even further back, it's really hard to, to find i guess well this is a fairly famous case it's called the campton wonder and sir thomas overbury wrote what he titled his true and perfect account in 1676 of the events he is believed by some to have been one of the um lawyers in the case or solicitors in the uh, case of it which is maybe why he knew so much and then a guy called peter clifford has been looked into this for years he's dedicated loads of his life he's got a brilliant website called camptonwonder.plus.com and he sort of goes into overbury's account he's found additional sources and so the research that i'm going to talk about is based on a lot of the research that he has presented so if you enjoy the story definitely go and check out the website camptonwonder.plus.com because uh, peter clifford has done a marvelous job hmm. The story begins on Thursday the 16th of August in 1660 in the small town of Chipping Camden. Prior to this, England had spent many years engaged in civil war 
Um, and so, I mean, I don't know loads about the Civil War. Um, but briefly put, if anyone who doesn't know, um, a period of conflict between those who supported the monarchy, that was Charles I at the time, and those who supported Parliament being in power, which was Oliver Cromwell and his roundheads. So as with many things at this time, it was a lot more nuanced and complicated than just royal supporters and parliament supporters i definitely did a year nine lesson on this maybe year eight actually a while ago and i didn't know very much i think i just went pure gore and just i definitely remember it at school but we just did it from the side of oh they liked the king they liked parliament but there was all sorts of there there's the tensions between the catholics and the protestants and then the puritans make an appearance at this point who really throw a spanner in the works so basically there's yes there's who should run the country but it's all tied in with who loves jesus the best um <laughs> which is just and then obviously you've got a bit of rebellion in there from the irish and the scots who were unhappy with the english anyway and it's just an absolute shit storm of different things going off so it's a country that's ripe for murder um but also it's just come out of the war so at the same time it's a period where people are trying to get along now yeah and um a slight um the murder actually is a bit unsettling for people at that time because they've just come out of this war they've had a few years of peace and they don't want to go back to those sort of tensions so um 1660 the wars had ended and in may of that year charles the second had just returned to england from exile and um, because it's now safe to come out so on the day in question in chipping campton william harrison is our main guy he was going about his business as usual. He was already 70 years old at the time, but continued to work as a steward for Viscountess Campden. Now, I think the fact that he's 70, to me, is pretty important. I know we can get done like, oh, I'm 70 and I'm not that old. Like, maybe if I said it, someone was ancient when they were 60 or 50, but 70's <laughs> still old, right? Can we agree that 70's old? I think 70's officially pretty old. Yeah, he's old. Like you can be a good, but you like if if you're if you're doing well, people will say you're doing well for a seventy year old. Yeah, at that point, he was clearly doing well for a seventy year old. But <laughs> later in the story, you'll be like, I don't know that like, he was doing that well. Um, so like I say, he was already seventy. He was continuing to work as a steward, and his job that day was to walk four miles to another village to collect rent money for the houses on the estate owned by the Viscountess. So Google Maps suggests that the walk from Chipping Camden to Charingworth that William Harrison was on should take about one hour and 12 minutes in one direction. However, at some point that day, uh, William Harrison's wife became pretty concerned that he wasn't home yet. It was starting to get dark, he should be back. And so she asked her manservant, John Perry, to start walking the route to Charingworth in the hope that he'd meet his master coming back the other way. So... A fretful night must have followed for Mrs. Harrison because neither the servant John Perry nor her husband returned home. Just made the stress way worse for herself. Yeah, like no one's back. So her son um, was sent out first thing in the morning to try and find two members. Well, eventually William's son met the servant Perry on the road coming back from Charingworth. So Perry informed him that actually there was no sign of William Harrison in the village whatsoever. So the two men start searching into the neighbouring village around of Ebrington and Paxford and then they start heading back home. 
But before they reached Campton, they were made aware by um, someone had come and told them that some items had been discovered out on the road from Ebrington that may be of interest to their search. The objects are, they're shown a hat, a collar band and a comb that they identify as belonging to William Harrison. So the hat is really badly damaged, like someone's just slashed it or cut it with a knife. The collar's got blood stains on it. Um, So fearing the worst now, Mm. the men are then taken to where the objects are found and thinking that they might find the body of William Harrison somewhere nearby. It was a lot of gorse bushes around, very prickly bushes, if you care to note. Um, However... Their search continued to be in vain as there were no further signs of the 70-year-old steward. I can't think of any tale where an item with blood on it has ever been found and then the end result is, they're fine, they had a nosebleed. It's not good, is it? Well, if that happened, I guess we wouldn't get to it, I suppose. Everyone just thought, that's it. The murders happened. So this news caused much panic in Campton and many of the town's inhabitants began um, combing the surrounding areas for the presumed dead body and though no body was found. So as William Harrison would have had rent money on his person, he had collected rent from some of the people in the Charingworth that day and he was getting on. It's thought that he was a prime target for a murderer with robbery as the motive and the main suspect for that crime was the servant john perry because it was so suspicious that if he's gone to find him and walked on the road why did he not come back till the next morning it should only take an hour to get there and back and he wasn't found either seems weird though because surely he was missing for a reason and then for him to suddenly be like i'm gonna take this opportunity to murder him it'd be quite a good cover though because i'm in me saying that makes him look like he murdered him earlier and then went oh yeah i'll go out to look for him maybe yeah well perry was questioned by a justice of the peace that saturday the 18th and he gave his account of what happened that night which was very it was less than straightforward let's say (laughs) so perry was sent to meet his master somewhere between 8 and 9 p.m He'd only gone a few hundred yards in the right direction. I mean, I'm saying that as if I know what it is. The sat-nav tells me yards. I still don't know what yards are. (laughs) Uh, But he'd not gone very far. He was still in that village. And he met a man called Reed. And he told Reed, Perry told him that he was too afraid to go and look for William Harrison because it was dark. So he was going to go back home and maybe fetch a horse so he could go and look. So the two men walked together a little way back to William Harrison's house and then said goodbye. And then Perry tried setting off walking again and only got a few houses away before he met another man called Pierce and they chatted, told him, oh, I'm a bit scared of the dark and they walked back in the same direction to the house together. So Perry, he was too scared to go off by himself but he was too ashamed to go back and see Mrs. Harrison who'd sent him out. So... John Perry said that he went into the hen house and just had a little sleep in there. <laughs> for a bit. So he actually just didn't go. He just climbed in with the chicken. So um, he said that he got up when he heard the town's clock strike 12 and said that the moon was out, it was shining. So he felt able that he could go on to Charingworth. 
However, as soon as you got about halfway there, a mist set in that clouded the way. So Perry does what he does best when he gets scared and he found a hedge that he lied down underneath till morning time. <laughs> so basically, everything's just an Airbnb if you don't give a shit about being clean. <laughs> Gap in the hedge, great. Chicken house. I bet someone's put a chicken house at Airbnb. Yeah, I mean, or like, in London, I reckon you could get away with one of those... Um, like toilet old old fashioned outside toilets oh yeah little urinal <laughs> yeah. all the creepy men in perry's story that he mentioned oh i just met him and they all were questioned and their accounts matched his but perry was still held in custody for the next week because something didn't seem right so while he was held in custody perry was said to be telling other prisoners that he actually did know what had happened to old Mr. Harrison. Um, he told people that he'd been robbed and he'd been murdered on the road. He even told people that he knew where the body was hidden. Oh. So some people went out to look in the place where he said it was, but there was still no body there. So Perry was brought before the Justice of the Peace again and questioned a week later, Friday the 24th of August. And he said this time that he knew that William Harrison had been murdered, but he wasn't the killer. So obviously the justice pressed him and was like, well, if you know, how did you know that he was murdered if you weren't involved? So Perry then eventually stated that the murder was committed by his own mother and brother. He went on to say that his mother and brother had been planning to attack and rob William Harrison as he collected the rent money for some time. Um, all they needed was for Perry to let them know when he was off on his journey and would be on the roads alone and they'd do it. So then John Perry went on to say that the morning of August the 16th, he told his family that Harrison would be heading to collect rent in Charingworth that day. He said after he'd been sent out in the night, he'd met his brother and they walked together and eventually they reached a gated piece of land known locally as the Rabbit Warren. It was like the garden of a house that was destroyed in the Civil War. So uh, Mr. Harrison had a key to this and he would go through the gate of this house and garden to get as a shortcut to his own house. So Perry told his brother that he'd just seen Mr. Harrison go into the rabbit warren and so they went in after him. Perry then went and saw Mr. Harrison on the ground and his mother was stood nearby now. Like the Blair Witch Project. And Perry asked his brother to not kill William Harrison, but he just responded with, quiet, you're a fool. And I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's accurate. <laughs> and proceeded to strangle him. So his brother then took the bag of rent money, tossed it to his mother, and at last, John Perry um, said that his mum and his bro brother talked about the fact that they were going to dump the body in a cesspool but John Perry needed to keep watch to see if anyone came by the house. So he said he didn't actually see them throw him in the cesspool because he was keeping watch. But And that's when he met Pierce and went to lie down in the hen house. So the cesspool was searched and nothing was found there. Oh. Perry said it was him who'd planted the hat, collar and comb to make it appear as if Mr. Harrison had been the victim of a highwayman. So following this confession, John Perry's brother, Richard Perry, and his mother, Joan Perry, were both arrested. Um, so Richard and Joan fiercely denied any involvement in the murder of William Harrison. 
only thing that they would confirm was that the two brothers had met in town earlier in the day, just by chance. And then John, however, maintained the same account of the murder in their presence, swore he would keep telling the truth until he died, even though they were absolutely going off him. John was also questioned about two previous incidents that had involved him and for which no culprit had been found. The first had been a break-in at William Harrison's house a year before. So some thieves had broken in while everyone was out at church and they'd taken a total of £140. So John now told the Justice of the Peace that he knew the culprit was his brother Richard because he'd told him where to get the money when everyone was gone. The second incident was a few weeks prior to the murder. John had been found by some townsfolk running and shouting around in the town. He had a pitchfork in his hand. He said he was in great distress. He was like hysteria, basically. Another hysterical man. Bloody hell. So John then told people that he'd been attacked by two men with swords and managed to use the pitchfork to fight them off. And then when the justice asked him about it again after the murder, John Perry said this time that actually he'd made that whole thing up so that when his family would rob Harrison later, people would believe that, oh yeah, there are thieves in this area because it happened to you earlier. Oh. So all three members of the Perry clan were sent before a judge. The first judge was only willing to try them for the theft of the £140 a year ago because there was still no sign of William Harrison's body to prove any, uh, to provide any further evidence. So the Perrys initially pled not guilty, but changed their plea to guilty after being advised to use what was called the Indemnity and Oblivion Act. Did you do about this in year eight? No. <laughs> so basically it was an act of parliament that happened after the civil war and it meant that people would be pardoned for any crimes that they committed during the war and would have no criminal record um mainly because they needed to put a stop to the war and it would just be dragged on if people had had their property stolen or destroyed or something happened and then they tried to get it back or request so they just said right what well, what's done is done um if there were certain people who got property back that was stolen, certain royalty, but if you were just a loyalist and your house was stolen, then tough shit. Yeah. But, like crimes were forgiven. So like it was like the purge, like whatever happened in that period, bollocks to it. Yeah, pretty much. So this tactic worked for them and all three were pardoned for the theft. Oh. They were like, right, you did it in the Civil War, fine. However, they still went on trial for the murder with a different judge in the spring. At this trial, all of them pled not guilty, including John Perry, who'd confessed it. Um, witnesses were called. I guess, like, he's not saying he did it, though, did he? He was just yeah. like, I just saw it. So they called some witnesses, and they said that who'd heard John's original confession, but now John was saying not the case. He claimed that he'd not been in his right mind when he was questioned no. by the Justice of the Peace, and that he didn't know what he was saying. It's very specific for you to be making it up. Yeah. So despite his change of heart, all three were found guilty of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. Um, John was... Uh, Joan, sorry, was killed first. So is this with nobody? Yeah. No. Nobody. Just his say-so? Yeah. Well, he's fucked himself there then. Mm-hmm. But, of course, in the Stuart time, there's always a chance that 
the woman had been a witch and it was all her fault. Of course. So they decided that they'd kill her first because lots of people believed that she'd probably put a spell on her sons (laughs) and that if she died, it would break the spell and maybe the two sons would confess something about it. Um, Funnily enough, that didn't work. And all three protested their innocence right to the very end. The end. No. (laughs) Two years later... After William Harrison's supposed death, he appeared very much alive. Oh, shit. Um, safe to say. Just went that... on like a Forrest Gump style run. <laughs> yup. I mean, people would have been like, oh, fuck, where have you been? And oh, oh fuck, shit. we killed three people. <laughs> so, of course, the people were desperate to know what on earth have you been? Like, he never, I mean, he's left his wife and son and yeah. buggered off and then Shit. for two years um so william harrison gave the story of where he'd been um he, it was a letter the source comes from a letter that he wrote to the local magistrate in chipping camden to explain where he'd been up to so remember he's 70 years old his wife and son are at home not having a fucking clue what's happening um and this is what happened to him that he says so he said he went to collect the rent on august 16th and was on his way home when things went to pot. A man on a horse was riding too close to him for his liking. I mean, so, that is annoying. I mean, with cars, though. Like. Yeah. But, like, you know what old people are like? Like, a proper old person. If something happens that they're not too happy with, they just don't give a shit anymore. So what he did, a proper codger move, he hit the horse on the yeah. nose. Sometimes I just want to, like, smash into the car that's, like, right up my arse or whatever, but not quite as easy when you're not on horseback i mean i thought it was very pope francis did you see that when he like slapped that lady on the hand because she was grabbing him i liked it i was like good on you people shouldn't just be like a woman grabbed his hand she was yanking it around trying to get some other jesus out and then he had to apologize for it It it's like no she deserved a slap um so equally mental though the horseman responded to that by swinging at harrison with his sword so then Harrison swung back with his walking stick, um, but he was hit in the side and injured. So next Harrison says that another man approached randomly and stabbed him in the thigh. And then a third oh. man joined. And instead of robbery or murder, they looked at this wounded old man and thought, we're going to kidnap him. He's going to be great. <laughs> Escalated quickly. I mean, he's been stabbed in the legs, slashed in the side. He's already old. Why would anybody want him? Yeah. Um, so they tied him up and put him on horseback and took him off into the night. Harrison recalls like that they spent some time where they threw him in a quarry yeah. and then dragged him back out. And then eventually on Friday night, they took him to a house where they let him rest. He thought he was close to death, but the journey carried on and eventually they went to a coastal town called Deal in Kent. Oh, I've been there. Um, And here he was sold for £7 to a man named Renshaw, who put him on board a ship. (laughs) What the fuck? An injured old slave. Come on. (laughs) I mean, that's scraping the bottom of the barrel as a slave trader, (laughs) 70-year-old bleeding man. Maybe seven pounds was a steal, but I'm sure seven pounds was a lot. Yeah. So also like not to like hold for ransom. Like you'd get more than that, surely. But to take to another country. No, yeah. They just wanted him as a worker. That's ridiculous. Um, So they put him on board a ship and he spent six weeks on board and he started to recover from his injuries. Um, But more bad luck was coming. 
So while he was on board this ship, some Turkish ships were spotted and um, Harrison and the other slaves said that they offered to fight and defend the boat, um, but they were all told to go and wait below the deck. And then when they were called forth from below deck, the crew were all put onto the Turkish ships and taken to a land where they would be sold into slavery again. Um, so they went around asking all the slaves, like, what are you good at? What's your profession? So they could sell them off. And Harrison told them that he'd some knowledge of medicine. So he was sold to an 87-year-old doctor who lived in Smyrna, which is now known as like Izmir in Turkey as like his helper i mean they've got to make a film of this guy's life (laughs) quite the tale so um luckily for harrison i mean his chance would have it this old doctor living in turkey in the 1600s had been to england (laughs) and he could speak english very well and he just adored lincolnshire They got on. Um, But despite it, apparently, so even though he loved England so much, didn't want to call him by his English name. He called him Bol. Bol. He called William Hansen, you are Bol. Um, So Harrison was able to work for him quite happily until the doctor died 18 months later. Oh. So he was there for quite a while. Um, After the doctor's death, he thought that this was probably the time to get back. (laughs) So... um, He was loyal to the doctor for that doctor. Nah. Yeah, I might go home now. Um, so the doctor had given him like a silver and gold plated bowl as a gift at one point. So Harrison took this and went down to the harbour where he traded his bowl for passage on a boat that was headed for Lisbon. Um, and then when he was in Lisbon, he met a man from Lincolnshire. <laughs> I feel like as he's writing this story, he just gets fed up. Like, or if someone's asked him a question, like, oh, and where was this man from? And he just says Lincolnshire, because I've already mentioned it once. Like, it's the first thing in my head. Um, so he met a man from Lincolnshire who he, Harrison told him his tale of woe and what had happened to him. So he helped him to get on a ship to England, which is when he arrived in London and wrote his letter. Um, so what, if any, it sounds ridiculous. It does sound ridiculous. But if anything else happened to him, we'll never know what it actually was. It was like a load of bad luck coupled with a load of really convenient luck. But whatever he was up to, I mean, if he was with this doctor and he was so nice, why didn't he write a letter home? Because three people died. Yeah, maybe he was just, I just copped off with someone else for a couple of years and no point in the letter did, that i noticed did he say oh i'm so devastated that three people were killed yeah. <laughs> because of my suspected murder one of whom was my own servant yeah that's true yeah um so yeah it's interesting there's loads of different theories on it um but again a lot of sources that come later a few plays a few ballads so it's hard to know actually which ones are based truly in fact and which ones are um, fabricated so the two sources i've focused on were Overbury's account and then uh, William Harrison's account as presented to me by Peter Clifford. I would recommend you look at his research. Very interesting. So Jerry Perry or whatever his name was. <laughs> John Perry, yeah. <laughs> the servant. He did just make all that shit up. Yeah, it was like false. So I don't know whether the event a few weeks before where he'd been running around in hysteria was sort of like a sign of some sort of mental break. And Bad so luck, he was though. easily pressured into making a false confession. Maybe shit um sorry that i ever doubted him yeah (laughs) (laughs) that was interesting okay guys thank you for listening um i hope you had a really great christmas and new year take care bye bye 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.